0: Uh, well, welcome uh, to all of you. If you're new or a guest here, my name is Dave. I'm our lead pastor. And I wanted to begin by just saying that uh, family reunions can be weird for, for lots of different reasons. Thank you for laughing so hard. I, I feel like there's a story over there from the Speller family. But, uh, but the weird I want to talk about at this moment is when you hear somebody laugh and you, and you think it's your brother. And, it, and it actually, it could be you and you turn and you look and it's someone you've never even met before. That's weird. Or the mannerisms and gestures or even the way that they tell a story and you feel like you've just fallen into a science fiction sort of Twilight Zone space because again, you've never met that person but they could be your mom. Uh, my Uncle George, I, I don't know him that well, um, but he spent uh, some time with us just before Christmas this year and it was there. It was in his mannerisms. It was in the stories he told and how he told them. It was in his uh, sense of humor. There was an unmistakable sense of family likeness. I remember thinking, is that what I'm going to be like, to sound like, to, uh, to, to look like when I'm in my 80s? And, uh, you know, as, as we look at the text this morning from 1 Peter chapter 1, we're looking at 13 to 2. To two, three. We're going to see that the new birth that we've been looking at uh, over the last two weeks that we've talked about—that um, means taking on the family resemblance. It's about coming to reflect and resemble our God and Father. Let's just pray as we open up ourselves to this text today. Holy God, who inspired this text to be written to a group of Jesus followers in the first century, we ask that you would speak your living word again to us as we listen to this text, and help us to have a fresh focus on the living word, on Jesus, our saving King. Enliven our spirits now by your Holy Spirit's work in us, that we might more and more reflect and resemble you, our Father. Amen. So we're going to hear this text together, invite you to open in your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're going to start uh, at chapter 1, starting at verse 13. Here's what we read, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flower, flowers of the field. The, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, now that you know what it's like to have the fresh air of God's goodness at the center of your life, now that you have tasted of the grace that's on your tongue now, there's a whole new pattern of existence that opens up before you, in front of you, and it's a high calling. For regular Bible readers, you probably heard kind of this echo when I read that last line. It's that, that tasting metaphor is drawn from Psalm 34, verse 8, which says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, some of us, um, I'm sure, have had that experience when you're, you're, maybe you're traveling and you eat something, maybe it was seafood on the Mediterranean or it was in South Africa or it was tropical fish or like fish tacos in Mexico and you think, oh wow, okay, that's what it's supposed to taste like. And then you're ruined for life, like yes, you get fish tacos, you make them at home or you eat them at a Canadian restaurant somewhere and it's not the same, it's never the same. And Peter uses that kind of sense-oriented illustration to talk about our life with Jesus at the center. Once you've tasted of the goodness, known the loving kindness towards you of God, how could you not want his life to keep living in you? You know, it's often that part of my own uh, faith experience, especially in those moments where there's been fear or despair or doubt that's crept up in me, and that happens. It's remembering the taste of what God has given me, has done for me. That's what makes my heart sing. It sings along with the the lyrics from Martin Smith. Uh, Delirious was the name of the band that he was leading years ago. And there's this one line in his song that goes like this, what would I have done if it wasn't for Jesus? Like, What would I become if it wasn't for Jesus and so sometimes i just step back and i ask myself that question in those moments of doubt and i remember the taste on my mouth i remember it in my soul and that enables i believe that tasting of the goodness of god that enables us to do the work the the good work the hard work that peter has just spoken of see the section of the book that we started on verse 13 it moves from being primarily in in Greek, uh, what Greek gr- grammarians call the indicative mood to the imperative mood in the section we read today, which is, just means this indicative, it's kind of what it sounds like. It indicates something. It's the, this is the way things are, it's the, this is who you are. Uh, for example, um, you have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's indicative. That's the the new situation in which you find yourself by God's grace. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. That's indicative of who we are as his children. And now because of that, because of the new birth, that moves us into a whole new way of life, into things that we do, life in a particular way, that's the imperative, That's the mood of commands. So imperative, well, that's what it sounds like. The imperative mood is about what we are commanded to do in response to all that God has done in us. So you have to know that the imperatives always flow out of the indicatives. We could say it this way. Because this is who you are, indicative, this is now how you are to act in light of that imperative. Another really basic way to say it is this become who you are. Like, become in your, uh, your practices, become in your attitudes, become in the, the way that you act in everyday situations what, by sheer grace, God has already made you to be. So, the string of imperatives that we see in this section come out of the benefits of who we are in Christ. and These are implications that are very practical and day-to-day Uh, decisions about how we live our new life in Christ. But this is real and legitimate work. Listen again to how Peter begins, therefore, right? That always connects what he's now saying to what he's just said, includes the indicative statements we've just read. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, that's a good translation. This means that, But unfortunately, the modern translation also hides something of the distinctly working class blue-collar imagery that a more literal translation gives us. As I just spent some time in the Greek text this week, here's what I came up with as just a really kind of wooden translation. Therefore, gird up the loins of your intelligence or your mind, fully self-controlled or sober. Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. Now, the imagery is totally foreign to us. I I, I understand that. It sounds a little bit funny to say, gird up the loins of your mind. But the first readers would get it. See, this gives us a picture of how someone who was about to engage in work would take their tunic, kind of pull it up so that their knees could move, tuck it into their waist belt, and then get down to some hard work. Remember, Peter was a fisherman. Peter did this every day of his working life. Remember, too, that the people Peter is writing to, many of them are slaves. That was simply a reality of the first century world. They're slaves. They know something about hard labor. They gird up the loins of their to get ready for work every day as well. And so they get this imagery. They're about to be told to do something that's hard work. That's what we need to notice first. This tells us that we don't work for our salvation, but we certainly work out what our salvation means in the practical ins and outs of everyday life. And that has a laboring to it. Listen again to the list of imperatives, uh, all the things that we're to do in response to the indicatives. Um, I forgot one on my list, by the way. It starts off with, set your hope on the grace to be revealed. We just sang about that, didn't we? I'll fix my eyes on eternity above. We were literally doing what this text says to do, to turn our attention to what's to come, to the long distance horizon. That's the first thing. Second, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So be holy in all you do. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Love one another deeply from the heart. Rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. And crave pure spiritual milk. Make no mistake, those things are going to cause an expenditure of your energy. These are work. However, the work described here, it actually begins with, well, begins with our thought life, Peter says. It begins with our dispositions that lead us to new ways of acting. Like, rid myself of malice and deceit, that doesn't have a lot that's physically involved there, does it? But it will require a load of mental, emotional, spiritual energy and effort so that I don't fall into those old patterns again. We'll have to tell ourselves a better story, the true story of God's self-giving love in Jesus. And then we have to work that deep into our hearts. That's going to take reflecting on the Scriptures. It's going to take showing up to church and listening to messages that help us focus on Jesus Christ and who He is. There is a work in that. There's an emotional, heart-level work that comes when we have to apologize to people or we have to forgive others, when we have to have those reconciling kinds of conversations. So, first, this text tells us that there is work to do. Gird up the loins. But then the second phrase, where does it start? Of your minds. These whole life changes, these honest to goodness, hard work ways of life flow from there, from our thinking, from our minds. But this isn't just being intellectual for intellectual sake. Like for Paul, or for Peter, pardon me, and the rest of the apostles' mind includes a strong connection between our thinking and our feeling and the resultant Behaviors. There's not like a clear distinction between those things. They all hang in together. So this thinking leads to new desires and new behaviors, and it builds character traits in us. Now, I've been including the word dispositions throughout this series, and I'm going to continue to do that because it's at least part of what the new birth gives us. It's a new framework for seeing our lives. Um, here's how the Collins Dictionary Here's just their brief definition of it. Disposition is a person's regular temperament or frame of mind. Your regular temperament, your frame of mind, that changes when Jesus meets you. What Peter is telling us here is that you don't just go with the flow anymore. You don't listen to your heart, so to speak. The idea of being fully sober or self-controlled is maybe even a better way of, of, of translating that. To be self-controlled in our thinking, in our minds, that shows up a number of times in 1 Peter. It's one of the big themes of the book, in fact. Uh, Pastor Ben, in our staff meeting, he pointed out, uh, especially in chapter 5, how that comes out. Let's just read that for a second. We see this in in 5.8, be alert and of sober mind. Why? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. That means we have to be responsible in our thinking, alert, self-controlled, he says. We can't simply let our minds run down whatever direction they happen to go. We can't let our emotions just lead the way. See, our our feelings are deeply linked in with our thinking. We know that through the biblical text teaches that, but so does neuroscience, Uh, that the way that you feel is deeply connected to the patterns of Thought that you hold to as well. Our minds are the place where our thinking, but also our feeling comes out of. How does the enemy devour us? Well, Peter suggests here that when you stop thinking about thinking, when you simply go with the flow, there's the place where the enemy attacks us. Let your mind wander unchecked, without self control, without sobriety and clarity of thinking, it will end up in envy. The advertisements all intend to generate envy in you. Let, just let it go unchecked. You will be envious. It will end up in lust. We know that. Let it go unchecked. It will end up in words of slander. It will lead us into deceitful speech. Even deceitfulness that comes in the form of exaggeration to make a point. There has been way too much of that that Christians have put up with in our own speech over the last two years where we've got a point to make and so we exaggerate. Folks, that's deceitful. We are called to be honest. If what we're saying or what we're taking in isn't just an honest, sober-minded assessment of the situation, we're going to act wrongly. We're going to feel wrongly. So we don't exaggerate because that itself is a form of deceitfulness. We are told to rid ourselves of that. If you find that you have to blow things up bigger to make a point, bring that back in check. Keep keep from being deceitful people. Instead, be honest. Be kind. That will require addressing our mental space. It will require using our heads so we don't lose our heads or become angry. Malice is the word Peter uses to describe that. So how do we do it? How do we Stay alert and and sober in our thinking? Well, Peter provides a key in the next verse. He says it means looking up, it means focusing on the distant horizon. He puts it like this Set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. I can remember a time in my life, it was my second year of university. Um, I had been a Bible reader all my life. I grew up in a great Christian home that taught us to read, and it was good. But it was really in that time that I gained a sense of urgency that I was actually hearing the voice of the living God somehow through this text. The Spirit was speaking to me. And it was during that season, as I began to take the the Word of God seriously, that I was forming a new set of dispositions that we've been talking about. And it might sound silly, and honestly, it felt silly at the moment, but I have this distinct memory of of walking out. Uh, I was probably getting ready to go in my car to go to school, and I just stopped in the driveway. And it was a clear blue sky day in Prince George. And I looked up to the sky. and, And I remember saying, Jesus, is today the day that you're coming back? Is it today that you're bringing the kingdom in all its fullness? I just stood there for about a minute looking up. And then I remember hearing this voice in the back of my head being like, Dave, that is absolutely ridiculous. That is so silly to be staring into the sky. And then I heard this other kind of sense in me as well that said, no, actually, it's not ridiculous to think like that. Of course, staring into the sky is not how you're going to live, literally just looking at the clouds all day, but you have to have an eye to the coming of Jesus Christ and now live in line with that. When I started, I just shared a little bit of that in staff meeting this week, and then then Pastor Harry said, now, what would happen if we actually just took a minute every day to stare into the sky and say, Jesus is today the day? He was in favor of that, by the way, and here's why. Here's why, this is what helps us make sense of how to live in our current moment, how to maintain a credible witness to the world around us. It's how we actually demote some of the common anxieties, even idolatries of our time. Idolatries, what I mean by that is the godlike status that we can easily give to things. One of those things that I see today is political ideologies. Man, that has been given idolatrous status even for Christian people today. This helps just bring the level down, to to demote it to where it belongs. Uh, People worried about the future of our country. Is that legitimate? Sure. But does it require pride of place in our lives? Absolutely not. It doesn't. Peter brings two things to the foreground to make sure we don't go down that road of thinking. He tells us, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time... As foreigners here, note time and place, first time. He goes on to quote from Isaiah 40 and he says, all people are like grass. You're going to wither and die. Just remember that. That kind of keeps our sense of like, okay, where do I fit in history in check? This is a time. This moment will pass away. There will be tomorrows after this. We look forward, Peter tells us, to the eternal. That dictates how we see this moment. Doesn't mean this moment isn't important, folks. It just demotes it from being idolatrously uh, taking up the the main place in our thinking. We've got other things that need to be the main place. Second is place, where you are and when you are here. Until Jesus returns and is revealed, that will not be your settled homeland. It's not. He says we're foreigners, exiles. Major theme of 1 Peter. You are a foreigner until... As we read in Revelation 11 and 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Here's why this matters for our moment. And this really came to the foreground in our conversation with our staff this week. This is a reminder to me. I need to remind myself of this. Canada isn't my home. It's a great place. I love living here. I have citizenship here, but it's secondary citizenship. Canada is wonderful but it's not my true home. It matters to care for this land, that's true. But it can be far too easy to fall into a sort of nationalism that raises the state and matters of the state to be an ultimate status in our hearts, the most important thing to be defended. I even hear that anxiety among Christian people. What about our great country? Okay, good question. But we should expect to answer that. We do need to answer that question, but we need to answer it in radically different ways than our neighbors who do not know the grace of God. We answer that as foreigners here. We don't answer it in the same kind of way. It's going to take thought, it's going to take prayer, it's going to take discernment, but we have to be asking the question, what do texts like this one teach us about our posture toward things like the state? One person said in staff meeting, if we are foreigners here, like if this is true, then we shouldn't be surprised if we see evil. Okay, We shouldn't actually be surprised by that. If we're foreigners here, Canada actually shouldn't feel like home. Now, I'm not suggesting disengagement from our civic duties. We have civic duties. We need engagement. Only that we hold those loosely, we hold them with open hands, and we demote any time we see those things become idolatrous, whether that's our security or any political ideology. When we recommit ourselves then, This is what it opens us up to. We recommit ourselves to love our sisters and brothers in Christ and our task to making Jesus known in the world. The point is this. There is a work. It's a work of decision-making. It's a work of the mind that we need to employ. Like Peter says next, as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be be holy because I am holy. Now, now I realize that that word holy just kind of sounds vaguely churchy to us, and we kind of go, well, don't really know what to do with that. Um, It's not a category we typically think in, at least in the wider, broader culture we're a part of. Um, So, we might think this is like the language of prudes, of folks who are out of touch. And you know what? That's true to an extent, because holy literally means other, distinct, different So it will not connect with the spirit of the age, at any age, in fact, whether it's the idolatries of the first century Greco-Roman world or of the 21st century in Canada. But once we get inside what holiness is all about, I think that our hearts ultimately, even desperately, long for holiness. First, notice that the call to holiness, it's linked to our new status as children of God. This is about family likeness. Before it's a command as well, notice, it flows as a result of grace. "It says God's beloved children that we, by His presence in us, take on a whole new way of life, a way that reflects and resembles our Father. Second, the text that Peter draws from, he's quoting from Leviticus chapter 19, and it actually has a similar function in Leviticus to what Peter is using it here. Namely, it's to mark out God's people as distinct from, as other from, the wider culture that worships other things, and it has ways of life that are actually degrading to human life. So, here's what we really need to see. We might think that to be holy would mean retreat from engagement with the world. It means the opposite, actually. The rest of 1 Peter, the New Testament, actually the whole of the Bible, in fact, Show us the opposite. Jesus moves toward people who are not holy in order to bring his holiness to them. He comes to restore life to people. There is a missional impulse that runs throughout the whole of the Bible, which says we are distinct, but not for the sake of separateness. We are distinct, actually, for the sake of others. We're not sectarian. We actually are in the world to be a blessing to the world because of our differenceness. I'm making up new words here, but you get the point. We bring the news of Jesus into the world not by being like the world, but actually by being not like the world and yet fully engaged in it. Peter tells us to be holy in all you do. So there's, there's no place in our lives where we don't imitate the beauty of God's holiness. I like how scholar Joel Green says it. He says, as Leviticus 19 has it, Holiness extends into the nooks and crannies of life, family and community respect, religious loyalty, economic relationships, workers' rights, social compassion, judicial integrity, neighborly attitudes and conduct, distinctiveness, sexual integrity, exclusion of the idolatrous and occult, racial equity, and commercial honesty, and then he rightly summarizes, this is a holiness of engagement, not of withdrawal. This call to be holy, to reflect and resemble our Father, it's actually defined throughout the rest of 1 Peter. It, at one level, that's, the whole book is about that. It tells us how to be living this holiness of engagement with the world around us. It's about how we are God's new birth into a living hope people and how we engage with our neighbors. But we do so as foreigners... We do so as exiles, and in that way, it will ultimately be for God's glory and for the good of our neighbors. I like the way uh, my uh, Gospel of Mark, I did like an upper-level exegesis course with uh, Ricky Watts at uh, Regent College. He's a biblical scholar who studied mostly um, the Gospel of Mark and the use of Isaiah in Mark, and he did his PhD at Cambridge on those things. And so he was looking a lot at the holiness kind of feature of Isaiah and Mark and how those things were kind of intertextual, uh, their, their overlaps. And he goes on to summarize this way. He says, holiness is people keeping. For from the human perspective, holiness, the call to holiness is the call to keep people. Go and read the lists of what we're called to, the commands throughout this text. It's about keeping relationships. It's about preserving the good of others and our connection to it. So to be holy is to take seriously the call to follow Jesus. Um, Gerald got a prayer request from one of the young ladies in Ukraine, in the city where, in Chernitsy, where our missionaries are working. Uh, Gerald got to visit there uh, with Calum this fall, and I, I went with Becky and, and, and Eric in, uh, in 2018 to the this, this city, and, and she's a part of Blogadot Church. Uh, Katya is her name. And she sent on a prayer request for us as a church for us as a staff, we prayed about it. Here's what she writes. Here's her prayer request. She says, pray that the hearts of the people would be for peace, not revenge. Friends, that's what holiness looks like. It's people keeping. When, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, it's people like Katya who picture that for us. Remember, this is not written by, in some armchair, far and safe. She's in Ukraine and saying, pray that my people would not want revenge but would want peace. That's quite a prayer. That's what holiness looks like. Then the verse that she linked with her quote or her request was this from James 1, 19 to 20. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. This peace-making impulse in Katya this desire to move away from anger and hatred and slander, those are the things we're called to get rid of, right? In two one, that is a picture of holiness. Katya also reminded us to pray for Russia. Not just that the, the, the heart of Putin would be changed. We need to pray for that. But she said to pray for the Russian people who oppose the war, who are risking their jobs, their security, in order to say so. So let's do that too. Now, the follow-up commands are all linked into Be Holy and what it's all about. We are told to live our lives as foreigners in reverent fear, knowing that our Father judges impartially. We're told to love each other deeply from the heart. Again, this is a work that requires employing our minds until we begin to embody new habits. On January fifteenth, two 2009, Captain Sullenberg had to make an emergency landing of U.S. Airways Flight fifteen. 49 on the Hudson River. Some of you might have seen the YouTube video of that. It's incredible. Go look it up. Sullenberg was able to land the plane because of years of practice and professionally acquired skill. He and his co-pilot had three minutes to shut down the engines, set the right speed, keep the nose of the plane just right, They had to activate the ditch system to to seal up as many vents as they could to make the plane as waterproof as possible. All the while, they had to glide the plane in a fast left-hand turn so they could come down facing south, going with the flow of the river. They then had to make sure the aircraft was perfectly level to land as flat as possible. Now, the reason that the captain and the co-pilot performed so well was that they had trained for just such an emergency. They had habits and patterns built into their life so that they could act that way, you might say, as a second nature. See, Peter knows that he's telling us to do things that require considerable effort. Character is about who we become, what becomes second nature to us. It is not second nature to love one another deeply from the heart. That comes as we cultivate and till the soil of our minds and hearts through repeated practices just like those pilots. It's our growth. So the question is this, is our growth our work or is it God's work? The answer, yes. It's yes. (laughs) See, for those who may be concerned about the word effort, I would remind you of how one person put it, grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. That's true. The fact that Peter says, gird up the loins, of your mind reminds us of the significant labor involved in joining ourselves to God's work of transforming us. And of course, everything, everything depends on on, on our being God's chosen people, on our being sanctified or being made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit. It all depends on our new birth as dependent on and being washed by the blood of Christ but our faith does call us to be engaged in that salvation in a way that leads to holiness. To do away with the adult vices, you might say, of the old life, of malice and deceit, of hypocrisy and envy, every kind of slander, and become like little babies who are crying out for the nourishment that comes through the transformative Word of God. This is a longing to grow up into our new birth, into what our salvation means and when we are drinking in the pure spiritual milk that he talks about, which is, while well, that pure spiritual milk is the message about Jesus. To quote Douglas Webster, he says, we want to get rid of even the hint of wicked disposition that seeks the harm of others. We reject the hypocritical division between a public self and a private self. We forbid the evil eye filled with its envy and greed. We refuse to insult put down bad mouth or disparage others. Peter's emphasis on all malice and all deceit and slander of every kind stresses a non-toleration policy for evil in the born-again Christian. Again, this is the kind of, of peaceable spirit, a longing to live in a way that does away with vindictiveness or resentments. That's the evidence of God's life in us. That's what it means to be holy. To go back to catch his prayer request then, we would pray that, that, the, that God's people in Ukraine would not have a heart for revenge but for peace. Yes, there may be just a sense of, uh, there may be a just sense, pardon me, of defending a city from invasion. I understand that. We can make a good argument for that. And yet, the sort of spirit that every Christian is to carry is different than a bloodthirsty, vindictive, or hungry for vengeance type. I hear and catch his prayer request a faithful response to Jesus' words. "Blessed, Bless those who curse you. May it be so in us too. And now as we move to the table, this is the place where we stop and we remember. And we say a collective thank you to God. We remember the ground and the reason for our hope taking on the family resemblance, being transformed in our dispositions, our habits, all of this is rooted in what we've come to taste. We've tasted that the Lord is good. And we're about to taste again in a very real sense. Uh, The bread and the cup that we eat, these are physical, tangible elements that draw us into tasting what God has done. Draw draws into tasting that the Lord is good. And this, the bread and the cup, remind us of the ultimate picture of God's goodness toward us. Just listen again to verses 18 to 21. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed or bought back from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. The reason for our hope is the finished work of Jesus. He bought us at the great cost of his own life. He frees us, it says, from the empty way of life that we had inherited uh, of self absorption, of living at the whim and every impulse of the heart, whether they were good for me or for others or not. He welcomes us from emptiness and empty living into fullness, fullness of life. He enables us to take on the family resemblance. And that's why we say, Thank you for what you've given us. We've tasted that you are good, God. We have. And Jesus, as we prepare our hearts now to take these elements, we ask that you would remind us of the life that we've been given through you. So Jesus, we come to you and we confess we need you. That we depend deeply on that new birth. It's not of ourselves, it's completely of you. And we say thank you. And then we invite you, even as we take the bread and the cup, to continue your work of transforming us, that we might be holy as you are holy. Amen. If you've put your trust in Jesus, this is for you. If you have yet to do that, why not today? So let's take this in celebration. We give you thanks, Lord. Let's take it together. Jesus had taken the bread and he broke it, he gave it to them and said, eat this, This it's my body. And then he took the cup after the meal and he said, this is the blood of a new covenant. This was poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And so as we take this, we remember what he's done. And even in the taking, we're tasting again and seeing that the Lord has been so good to us. Let's take it with thanksgiving.